Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access to not only our great daily newsletter, but all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from the sylvan splendor of Goldcorn Holler in the wilderness southwest of Nashville, Tennessee, is Jin Yumi, also sometimes known as Jeremy Goldcorn, who is taking a break from his scholarly exegesis of Xi Jinping's report to co-host this program. Jeremy, you know, you can actually use a simple search function for things like the frequency of mentions of words like, you know, 国家安全 and stuff like that. Uh, sorry also that my, my phone calls to you earlier interrupted your, your count and that you had to start over. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kaiser. It's but can you greet the people and introduce our guest? Yeah, uh, well, hello, people. So um, where to begin? Our guest is Evan Osnos, who is an old friend of Kaiser and mine from our Beijing days. He is a writer for The New Yorker and an author of many books, including one which is very relevant to today's show called Age of Ambition, about China in the go-go, boom-boom years that Kaiser and I like to refer to as the golden age of liberalism under Hu Jintao and Wen Evan is also the author of a book that helped me understand my newly adopted homeland called uh, Wildlands, which is about how crazy and f- up America is. So Evan Osnos, welcome to Seneca. It's so good to talk to you again. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, thank you, Kaiser. It's great to be back on the pod. I have to tell you, Jeremy, you know, there is a thing about writers. They say that we all just write the same book over and over again. You know, you may change the setting or the characters, but the sort of basic underlying approach never really changes. And I have to I confess that's true with me. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, one, uh, I think the central question of today's show actually is, which is more f***ed up, America or China? <laughs> which is a question I've asked you previously in a different context. <laughs> and we'll get to it. <laughs> and you found a way to show that it's both. It's a dissertation <laughs> in the making. I think so. Hey, so we're going to be talking about Guo and Gui today. Uh, he, Evan wrote a profile of Guo. Uh, you know, it's it's something that really brings the two worlds that he's covered together, China and the United States. I'm pretty sure that most of the people listening to this show, maybe even all of you, know uh, who Guo Wengui is. But let's set it up that, anyway. Well, wait, I want you to make say something very important. That he is not related to me, at least as far <laughs> as I know. <laughs> That's what you say, Kaiser. Let's establish uh, who he is. Who is Guo Wengui, yeah. Evan? Well, it... If you've got some time, I'll give you a 10,000-word answer, actually, which is what I've done in The New Yorker. But let's do the abbreviated version. <laughs> That's abbreviated, what I'm asking for. <laughs> the abbreviated version is, uh, can, one of the things to know is that he hasn't always been known to people as Guo Wengui. At other times, he's been known as Miles Kwok or Miles Guo or Guo Hao Yun or Ho Wang Kwok. He's used a number of different names, um, not only, you know, to communicate with people in the West, but also within China and Hong Kong. And and so and that's, I think, a useful 
piece of information because it captures the fact that this guy's gone through multiple iterations and permutations over the last 40 years that are in their own way, I think, a little... Um, they're, they're like, they tell a little miniature story of China and ultimately China and America's encounter. Yeah. Anyway, that's a fancy answer. The unfancy answer is he's a real estate developer who came up out of Hunan and then uh, made his way to uh, Beijing, where I think anybody who was in Beijing in the years we were there would recognize the Pangu Plaza, which was the giant. Thing. That is what, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Pangu Plaza. What is the giant thing? So this is a building just uh, north, I believe, of the main Olympic buildings, including the Water Cube. Uh, and what is it, Evan? Well, it is uh, it is a series of high rises. It's, uh, it's got um, a set of sort of lower buildings, and then one very tall building. And at the top is the shape of an Olympic torch. It is also sometimes described as resembling a dragon, and um, it's it is a self designated seven star hotel. And <laughs> what's interesting is actually just recently. I mean, this is not to skip ahead in our narrative, but it's a useful. This is a little bit like the moment in the movie where you start in the present and then go into the past. But recently, yeah. the Pangu, which was seized and auctioned off. Uh, from Guo Wenghui, the the tallest building, they've actually removed, they've decapitated the little uh, flame that was at the top. It's now been rendered kind (laughs) of like an ordinary high rise in Beijing, which in some ways feels like a punctuation mark on this whole tale. Yeah, a nicely, nice, nice little bit of closure there. So I, you know, we're as you can probably already hear, we're kind of doing an experiment today where we're going completely unscripted. So, um, Evan, I, I actually only have one real question for you, which is essentially what, after all this time that you've spent reporting on this guy, all this time that you've spent talking to people who you know know him, what do you think is the deal with this guy? I mean, is there kind of like an Occam's razor answer uh, that cuts through all and says like, okay, I mean, I mean, I got my theory. Sure. Jeremy's got his theory. Yeah. What do you? If, if I can give you the, I can give you my theory. Sort of bottom line up front, and then we can go yeah, into yeah. the details that are interesting. It's not bury the lead. Yeah. I think in the end, this is the story of a survival, and maybe even a, of a survivor, I should say, maybe even a survivalist in the kind of, in a very recognizable way, I think that all of us who have spent a lot of time in China, particularly traveling around the hinterlands, would recognize. I mean, he's a guy who's one of eight children from a little village, Sitzhaoying village in in Shandong province and not the prosperous part of Shandong eventually you know, <laughs> makes his way up through the rough and tumble years of, of like the Hunan kind of real estate. This is all during, you know, all of those kind of harrowing tales of Hunan with blood selling and all this other stuff. It was just a rough place. It was a kind of primeval oh, yeah. capitalist experiment. Gangster's paradise. Yeah, well, in, de- in defense of yeah. my ancestral province, <laughs> uh, look, it has a population the size of the unified Germany, yeah. and it's the physical size of the state of Missouri. Your fellow province mates are thugs, basically, is what you're saying. But yes. My co- co-provincials are not thugs. They are gentlemen and scholars, and they are the denizens of the venerable Zhongyuan. But, and, but I do think it captures, like, Hunan is a really specific culture of that time, yeah. you know? And, like, 
so he kind of gets his way out of there, makes his way to Beijing, figures out the system in Beijing, whatever that system is, whether it's like you got to have this kind of power on your side, you got to have this kind of muscle on your side. And eventually, because one of these deals goes haywire, off he goes to the United States. And what I think is kind of fascinating is he figured out our system of power and money. And plugged straight into Steve Bannon. Basically, precisely right. Exactly. And, you know, so that's the and so in some ways, you whatever you think of him, you have to kind of sit back and kind of marvel at his the chutzpah. I I know it's not it's not fashionable anymore to use this word, but the balls of of this man, the the, the chutzpah, the the ability to come here and just go there with your yacht and be like, I'm the guy. (laughs) <laughs> There's a, I, I've actually been really struck that he t- more or less he took the toolbox that he developed in China about courting powerful people and figuring out how to flatter them and 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 uh, keep them happy and then just imported that to the United States and discovered yeah, that yeah, we were yeah. quite amenable to that. Some but you, exactly. you, you know what's so amazing about him is that, like, I mean, he, this is a man of supremely bad taste. Pangu Plaza is like <laughs> one of the most kitschy buildings ever built in the universe. Uh, and yet he had Tony Blair, in your article, you report that Tony Blair said that he is a man of impeccable taste. Quote, you know, unquote. You're right. I, quote, unquote. I mean, I, I, there, there's something that he has some magic there. I don't know. I mean, it's weird. It's like I, you, me, we can all smell that kind of sketch on him from like miles away, right? Miles. Miles. Uh, <laughs> I, miles quack away. You know what? I think there's a, uh, there's a, I, uh, to my mind, one of the most interesting things that came out in this reporting was his experience with Orville Shell. And Orville. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask I, you, you know, about if, that. Yeah. If, should I give a, a, just a short description of, of that? I found that kind of fascinating because Orville, as many listeners will know, is a uh, is a is a really seasoned China hand. You know, he's the head of the U.S. China Center at the Asia Society. He's a journalist and author who's been in and out of China for decades. Really, kind of knows the so, the sort of the soft tissue of the place. Can kind of read the moves, and he met. Guo Wenguei at one point in 2008, and Orville agreed to tell me the story for this piece, which was I I was very grateful that he did. Um, and, yeah, it's like I've known you all these years, Orville. Why have you never mentioned this? <laughs> it's a, it's the underground Ferraris. <laughs> it's an amazing. So what happened was in about 2008, uh, right around the time of the Olympics, Orville, whose job is to know as many people involved in the U.S.-China relationship as he can, you know, he was introduced to. To to uh, to the to Gua, who was then calling himself Miles Quack, and and Quack, aka Gua, invited him to dinner in their in the private dining room of his of his dacha up on the top of the Pangu, and you know he had this chef who prepared like organic cuisine. Gua is very particular about his food. They then went down to the basement to see this underground garage filled with Lamborghinis and Maseratis and fancy cars of every time. And, and anybody who knows China will know that that is actually like a signal that you have a certain kind of backing because you're able to right. get that stuff and keep that stuff, which is probably the more difficult act. So then at one point, Orville begins to run into visa trouble. He, he's written a lot about human rights over the years. And Guo says, well... I can help you with that. I'm going to fix it for you, but you have to talk to some people. And so 
Orville says, okay, who are these people? And he says, let me introduce you. So he begins a series of meetings, all of them at these tea houses, like fancy, fancy tea houses around Beijing, in which it would always be two people and they would never provide business cards or say, <laughs> it's always two people. <laughs> well, it's always, it's always it's traveling always in two, right? You know, it's always I learned, two people. <laughs> I learned that in North Korea. You always travel in two because yeah. of that way one, they, one can always mind the other. So the yeah. two, and they would, and they would have these long conversations about us, China relations. And, and Orville concluded quite rapidly uh, because it's not his first rodeo that they were trying to flip him, that they were intelligence officials who were trying to, gain his cooperation and they were offering him things. And of course he said, look, he said, I didn't know anything. I don't have any classified information. And besides my job is to try to understand what's going on in the Chinese um, kind of bureaucratic mind. And so he had these facets. He's like, I learned more from those encounters than I ever had in 30 years of visits to China. And, uh, and he said, but I also learned from that experience that Guo Wengui was extremely well situated with a man named Ma Jian, who was the, uh, chief of counterintelligence at the Ministry of State Security. Guo was on the phone with him constantly, according to Orville. Yeah, yeah. Damn it, Orville, why did you never share this story with me? <laughs> Jeremy, was it two guys for you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was it like a really Was it a Puar tea? tea? What I mean, kind of tea was it? Uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, 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 I made them buy me very expensive single malt scotches, actually. <laughs> 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 the Ministry of State Security is slightly in debt to an Irish bar on Jim Bargia. <laughs> they probably own the bar on Jim Bargia. So it's just take from one hand to another. So ba- basically, I, I my my take on this guy. I mean, this is this is this is all consistent. But I mean, I I, I think like he's just you know he's a straight up grifter, an utterly amoral, pathological narcissist with delusions of grandeur. Does that sound like anyone else you know? <laughs> Uh, basically, I hate to admit that Steve Bannon, with his what did you call it, distinctive assemblage of collared <laughs> shirts, I I, I I love that phrase. Um, that will be his Homeric epithet from now on. Steve Bannon with his distinctive assemblage of collared <laughs> shirts. Um, By the way, that is the kind of a uh, little bit of a sentence that inside the New Yorker we had like multiple emails about, like um, you know you ha- how to get, how to get that. Did one you have right. to fact check that? <laughs> well, at one actually, we did have a fact checker spent uh, 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 some kind of heroic time examining a video to try to understand in one particular video how many shirts. Uh, uh, Steve was wearing. <laughs> so actually, uh, yeah. I, I'm sorry to interrupt your flow, Kaiser, but I think uh, it, it's a good let, time let me, to Let me finish this. my thought, though. Let me, let, me, let me finish my thought, though, though uh, okay. is that, you know, <laughs> Steve Bannon was right when he described him as the Donald Trump of Beijing. Yeah, he really, and it's not the only one who yeah. told me that. I mean, I was fascinated, the number of people who, from various different points, I mean, Steve Bannon is saying this from a position of great affection for both of them. Um he described Gua. In fact, even and 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 Bannon even concluded that years ago. It's kind of fascinating. You know, Bannon had spent time in China partly when he was running an online gaming company and was in Shanghai and Hong Kong. And he right. at that point heard about the Pangu. And by his telling, uh, he says that's when I realized that he was the Donald Trump of Beijing. Um, it was even before later. You know, it was even before Gua joined Mar-a-Lago and eventually presented this full array of instincts that are quite Trumpy. It was um, Pangu Dasha that convinced. Him, was it well i mean pangu dasha is pretty much is i mean it's, it's the trump it's, it's tower all, of beijing it, it, it yeah. really is yeah. it, you know it really is yeah. and so anyway, anyway i think but, but actually a lot and a lot of the people though who are in 
kind of in these various battles, and there are many with Guo, they too say he's really Trumpian. And I think that's that's something. What's fascinating about that from my perspective is to see that this is an international character, you know, that that is a thing. And I'm sure there's somewhere walking around in Dagestan right now that, you know, the Donald Trump of Dagestan and the Donald Trump of, <laughs> of the Amazon. I just don't know them, but I, it might be a fun conference. Well, that one got elected. He was named <laughs> Bolsonaro. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Good point. Good point. Uh, I mean, my, my first kind of media job in Beijing was with uh, a guy running a magazine who was very Trumpian. Uh, it's it's a way to get things done, you know, the chutzpah. You just, you know, you just tell people whatever you want to happen, and it, it can happen. If you're convincing enough, it's uh, Steve Jobs called it a reality distortion field, or Walter Isaacson right. did. I'm not sure who coined the phrase. There is a way of, yeah, essentially kind of willing an alternate reality into being. And, you know, that can be obviously very destructive. It can also be for the person at the center of it. You can run that string out for quite a long time. You can if, you, if, if you've got the energy. Um, so speaking of I, energy. It doesn't work for me. I mean, I, I've actually tried to, to implement this playbook. <laughs> I bought like a thousand copies of Michelle Obama's memoir. <laughs> it didn't do anything for me. Is that what's tacked up on the wall? Is acoustic tile in the? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. I, I actually I pulped them and turned so, them into. So, Evan, no. Evan, the New York is famous for its fact checking. So, how the fuck did the New Yorker fact check this piece? Jeremy, man, you're going to make me beep so well. Much so, it, it, let me do that again, then, Evan. The New Yorker is famous for fact checking. How did they fact check this? And in fact, how did you do your own reporting? Because uh, this, I mean, you know, you, you have some incredible stories there. You must have given Orville Shell a couple of whiskeys or something, but I mean that maybe was the easiest. Where? Wh- how did you source this information? This is this is a challenging piece. Uh, this is a to put it mildly. Uh, but what's so first on the fact checking? I think, and I have to say, I love the fact checking process at the New Yorker. It really is like a kind of amazing ancient. Jesuitical creed that, like, <laughs> just this way. It's at first, it begins with this idea that things can be ascertained, that you really can by asking enough people, by being clear, by coming back, coming back, coming back. You can actually clarify something. And so, uh, there Pretty were naive, uh, naive uh, <laughs> view of the world, I suppose, in some ways. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it, this is, the reason why this story is hard is you know, in this piece, I talk about this concept called the the wilderness of mirrors, which was an idea that was James Jesus, exactly, yeah. who was yeah. the head of CIA counterintelligence from 1954 to 1974. And, and America's own, Magian, and he took, yeah. right. And he took that idea from an old T.S. Eliot poem. And like, there's this whole idea of ambiguity as being essential to the business of counterintelligence. It's all about how do you ever judge somebody's motives? How do you ever know if they're bona fide or, you know, malified? Who, who do they really, are they a defector that they say they are, or are they still working for somebody? And you put that then in the context of fact-checking, which is this very, you know, black and white, we can clarify. And it is a, it is a bit of a, they are awkward. Um, it's an awkward encounter. But in this case, we had three fact-checkers who worked on this piece, uh, who will remain nameless. Uh, uh, because I don't want to get anybody else involved in this that uh, is not publicly described. And I think, um, uh, but I am great, 
I'm a great admirer and gr- very grateful for the work that they do because it's just incredible. And it's so how do you fact check? Well, um, you know, one thing you do is you go based on uh, available public records and there's often more than you might think. Um, oftentimes there's a huge mountain of legal filings in this case, in this story um, on all sides. Gua, as I mentioned in the piece, is involved in a lot of litigation. He is sort of mm-hmm. offered He's been deposed a number of times. He's um, he's offered his own story. People around him have given depositions under oath. There are a number of other people, um, and then and then you there are other rings of ways. To, I mean, there's just a lot of people who have encountered him from various governments inside China, outside China, over the years. He's been around a long time, and in these different modes, has kind of had so many different meetings that I cast a very wide net and it didn't take too long to begin to find people who were, who had experiences of him with him or against him. Yeah. You know, I know that you've talked to Hu Shuli before for stories. Did you reach out to the folks at Caixin? Cause no, I, guess it was Ch- I didn't. Yeah. But I, I mentioned in the piece their, their work because it's been really some of the major, um, some of the major pieces of journalism that have been done appeared in Taishin. I, and I, it's worth my saying, you know, Guo denies any wrongdoing. And I think this is important to apply across our conversation. Guo denies wrongdoing. He denies bribing people. He denies many of the things that Taishin reported. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there we are. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if Hu Shuli denies having a love child by Wang Qishan. Uh, yeah. For people who don't know, there's a very kind of um, bitter backstory between Tai Xin and Hu Shuli oh, yeah. and Guo Wenguei and uh, there's litigation and so on. But let's tease that out a bit. So uh, Tsai Xin is probably the best uh, independent or more or less independent media company in China. It's a business magazine run by a feisty lady named Hu Shu Li. Hmm. Um, and uh, so the, the, this feud between them is they have reported some unsavory things about Go Gui, and Go Gui has uh, alleged some, on his own media platforms in America, has alleged some unsavory things about Hu Shu Li. Is that, is that about right, Evan? Yeah, I think. And then there's litigation following that. But, uh, but I, your description is, is right as far as I know it. As long as we're talking about kind of sources and methods, I want to give a shout out to uh, to Mother Jones magazine, which has done some remarkable work on the subject of Guo Wenguei. And in particular, they got access to some internal recordings that were done. And I recommend anybody who's interested in, in what I wrote should go and seek out pieces written by Dan Friedman, because there's just- Yeah, they're really there's, great. There's quite a tale there too. Yeah, Dan, Dan Friedman's done amazing work on that stuff. Um, one of the things, though, that I don't think came from Mother Jones or whatever it was, you found this letter uh, that claims to uh, be written by Guo in which he is sort of begging the powers that be in Beijing for a clear mission, saying that he will, you know, go to bat for them. And he's going to, you know, promise not to cross any of Xi Jinping's red lines, that, you know, he's loyal to Xi. Um, the, you know... This is evidence that he may actually be cite this yeah. as evidence that he might be, you know, working for a pro Xi Jinping clique, a faction inside of Beijing. Yeah. Uh, what, what what do you think? What do you make of that claim? Well, what's interesting is so Guo would deny that he's working for 
a clique inside Beijing, but he doesn't deny writing the letter. In fact, he he acknowledges writing the letter and, and he's he's hmm. kind of talked about it um, in a sense. So he wrote this letter in which he said, assign me tasks, um, allow me to atone for my past mistakes. He said, you know, I want right. to be I want to do good propaganda in my own style of propaganda. Uh, he said, I will never cross the red lines, which, you know, means essentially the bottom line, whatever, however he perceives that. Um, and I think for a lot of folks, particularly dissidents in the United States who distrust his motives, they say this is about as clear as you could get of a roadmap for what was going on, what he was doing. He would say, no, this was a, an effort on my part to try to negotiate for family members and employees who were arrested and to try to get assets unfrozen and to try to sort of break the impasse. And what we don't know is what the result of that letter was. And um, I, I haven't seen if it exists. I don't know about it. He, I haven't seen if he's talked about getting any kind of response to that. Um, but yeah, there there are. So one of the interesting, this goes to Jeremy's question about how you report a story like this. One of the things that's happened over the course of this long process is that he has released a number of recordings of various people and conversations over the years, including, for instance, his own conversation with the Ministry of State Security and Public Security about about um, you know, when they visit when they sort of sent a team to New York, kind of a dramatic moment in the piece. They sent a team to try to bring him back and he recorded it, edited it, ec released excerpts of it. Then there are other recordings that have been released by by sources unknown. And, you know, the assumption is that some of that's been released by the Chinese government, by members, you know, by party organs and so on. But it's just it, it really is like operating in this almost kind of like postmodern world of intelligence and the internet and, you know, everything is available to be recorded and released and can be used as a tool of combat in this, in this long saga. So it's, it, it's quite unlike any other story I've ever really encountered actually. Evan, I, and you didn't really write about the whole VOA kerfuffle. Right. Yeah. yeah. We sort of had to pick our shots at a certain point. There was like a limit to how much we could include, but basically, so the, and the VOA thing, I think, which was fairly well covered at the time, was just uh, sorry to interrupt, Evan, but I think you're prepping yourself to write a biography of Donald Trump <laughs> after his death. This is well, prep work, right? <laughs> I, I I don't know. We'll we'll. It seems to be a crowded shelf. That's a crowded shelf. Um, uh, I think so. The so at the time, one of the very first moments that Gua became known to the public on a wide scale was that he had agreed to an interview with VOA. And there's a lot of internal dispute about what exactly VOA agreed to do and planned to do. Um, some of the reporters involved said, we had gotten permission to do this extraordinary three-hour interview with him. There, that, that was Sasha know. Gong, right, was the reporter. Right, yeah, was, Sasha yeah. Gong. Right. And then... And then she ended up working with Guo on, on on some projects afterwards, but then having a big falling out and has now kind of been one of the people who is accusing him of of wrongdoing and so on. But, so you know, so Guo agreed to Guo was going to do this interview with with VOA. And after an hour of the interview, uh, the VOA said, all right, that's enough. If there's if there's more to do, we'll we'll put it out online. And that sort of cutoff of the interview became, in Guo's telling, a sign that somebody had gotten to VOA and, you know, it was maybe the, the <laughs> CCP and 
coming down on on VOA and so on. But what's what's and so that and that caused and then Sasha Gong, who was the reporter, she left VOA and ended up. The reason why I mention all this, what's interesting is that initial interview was one of the times that he talked and sort of actually provided useful explanation about his relationship to the Ministry of State Security and in China. He described mm-hmm. himself as a as a as a as a Shangye Guacao commercial affiliate of the ministry. And um, I think there's a way in which I, that... I used to describe myself like that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> now you're in Nashville, Shangye Guacao. I think, you know, I think there's a that was like a window, you know, and so you got Yeah, he, he's, he talks a lot and it's useful. Do you know what happened to the remaining two hours of the interview that were never aired? I don't think that they did the other two hours. I, I don't know is the answer. I think it's possible that – I don't think that they ended up actually doing them. It was a huge – you know, that oh, caused okay. a big breach inside VOA. There was a big fight about who was – and then yeah. – Right, right. It, it was. And I remember people had various interpretations of it. And I, I, I remember thinking to myself, well, it, it, it does at least teach me that all media companies, including The New Yorker, <laughs> uh, are dysfunctional supremely <laughs> because think, what other kind of person would actually do media for a, a profession? So that's just what right. happens. <laughs> but, it, 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 the question is: Does it attract people like us, or does it make us like this? So, you know what I think is what, what, what I think is interesting. You know what I what, what's interesting about that period was that was this moment when it was really unclear exactly where. Guo Wenguei was going. Like, what did he represent? What was he trying to do? And so I think right. at the time there were people who said, oh, this this cutting off of the interview, if that's what what it was, um, th- that seems to be a sign that he's got big truths to tell and that he's offending. Po-. But, you know, since then, a lot of the people who were defending him and kind of um, on his side have broken with him or he's broken with them. And he, as, as a lot of people will know, he has gone on a big uh, campaign against many of the more prominent American dissidents, and that's been a source, in, of including a, a actual harassment, right? You know, you know. So I think you know, Jeremy and I, we've been making light of him in in along, along the way here, I, but this is this is not. You know, even though there's a lot of comic gold in your piece on him, this is not a a frivolous sort of purely funny piece because the guy is dangerous, right? I mean, he actually is dangerous. I, Globally I'm just dangerous. Telling a little, a little story about. I mean, so at one point a couple of years ago, a defector from his organization approached mm. me. This person wanted to sort of spill everything that that they mm. knew about what what was happening at his organization. I said, "Why are you calling me? Then you really should make your first phone call either to the New York Times, sorry, New Yorker, to the New York <laughs> Times, or or to the District Attorney of the Southern District of mm, New York." Yeah, this is this is great. There was a lot of allegation of straight up criminality, um, but this person was in fear for their life. Yeah, and was re- really worried and uh, hinted at dark things that have happened to others who have defected. So. I mean, he's obviously not harmless. Like, look what he did, this orchestrated campaign against Tong Biao and against other human T- rights T- Tong Biao, who is uh, a Chinese uh, rights activist and lawyer who is now in exile in the, in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. The, one of the episodes in his saga is that he, at one point, in effect, declared uh, the dissidents in the United States to be um, traitors. And it wasn't, it's, it's always this 
kind of puzzling question of traitors to whom and, and who is he representing. His followers ended up staging these long protests in front of people's houses, like for months, where they would stand in front right. of the house shouting with bullhorns and calling them spies. And and in a couple of cases, it led to violence. And, and he later said, I don't condone violence uh, against any individual. It, but it is, I, I am struck by it. it it's a it's a case in which it's a little bit like the rules of a particularly rough subculture of the real estate business in Hunan in the 90s has kind of been transposed into American suburbs. And yeah. you like, oh, this is a bit of a funny culture clash because it's kind of fascinating. Um, but those are the those are the techniques that we see, which is this collision of the use of force and um, and power and politics and money all mixed up in this brew. And I think all of us recognize that brew from the sort of Balfahu period of making money in China and, oh, sure. you know, and now you and see it, it here. It's a perfect match for Trumpian America. Right. A hundred percent. I mean, I have to tell you, Jeremy, I mean, I think you, we may have talked about this briefly at one point when I was on the podcast a few years ago during the kind of Trump rise. I remember in some ways working in China in those years felt like pretty good preparation for understanding the Trump phenomenon. Washington, D.C. in the Trump years, yeah. Because it, he used propaganda. He used uh-huh. Uh, cult of personality. He was a demagogue. He was, and he was using then, you then graft onto that the power of money and everything else. And, and tsunamis of kitsch. Right, uh. exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, I, you know, Trump was not the first person to show me a golden toilet. That's all I said. <laughs> so, Evan, in the end, what parts of his claims to have been you know, working with the MSS, do you actually believe? I mean, clearly he was closely tied to Mantien. I mean, there's, he doesn't deny that, claims not to have ever bribed him. But what about things like little details he provides, like that he took these trips to meet with, presumably in Dharamsala, with the Dalai Lama as a sort of a, a, an interlocutor, a, a kind of a uh, an intermediary between Beijing and and his holy yeah those are that's accurate actually i i communicated with the dalai lama's office on this wow. topic to make sure it was true i mean this goes to the question of how do you fact check well i mean i, right. I you call up the I, dalai lama <laughs> right and, and as and, one does <laughs> and, and, and what the dalai lama's uh folks have said is look yeah we we met with you know the as they say his holiness met with this guy there's photos of it actually um but they didn't know that he was operating uh, in the way they didn't know that he was operating on behalf of the Ministry of State Security. I think, um, you know, he's also at various points. I mean, Guo at one point came back from North Korea with a kind of Kim Jong Il haircut and was telling everybody at dinner was kind of regaling everybody with stories of his time with Kim Jong Il, having had dinner and sort of you know gotten to know him and was very friendly with him. That I don't know. That it's impossible to know if that happened. But the track record is not. Uh, That part is quite well described, actually. In the intelligence community, people tell me about that role of the cutout, you know, the civilian who is enlisted by a service in order to make contacts that you don't want to have officially on the books as government to government. And the the Dalai Lama and 
the, and the ministry would be a prime example of that. So, right, he, right, right. and you know, by his own description, he had the code name Wunan. He was operating as kind of a uh, he was operating as a he was operating as a cutout, and that that does seem to be accurate. Yeah. Damn, this guy is complicated. Yeah. I mean, seriously. Yeah. That's the way to put it, so, I think, you know. So so you you must have had some anecdotes or um, little, you know, episodes that ended up on the cutting room floor that didn't make their way into the final edit. Can you share one or two of those with us? Oh, man. I think, um, I think. We'll have to, Without we'll getting have to in save trouble. that for the <laughs> sequel. I, look, I, I, I actually, I mean, I ended up, accumulating everything I could on this topic. I, I don't think there's, I, I actually put it slightly differently, which is that um, I guess what, what I was kind of fascinated by in the end was what kind of role is this guy playing in U S China relations right now? Like, does he, is he, is he actually exerting forces of his own or is he just magnifying our own, anxieties and neuroses and um is he a player and And where do you come down on that question i think he is both exerting forces of his own there's there's no question that he is seeking to have an effect you know i mean this just watch this video with him and steve ben this is one of the more surreal pieces of footage that's ever been assembled by human hand but he and steve bannon on a little boat in new york harbor chanting take down the ccp and you think to yourself what am i watching and um with a love you man yeah and the kiss yeah they said you know and then gua signs a document in blood i mean the whole thing is like what is what am i experiencing here and um but at the same time there's a way in which and this is where tung biao in the story makes a really important point you know he he says that many of his friends in the dissident community um, really gravitated to Guo when he came out because they said, here's a guy from the heights of power who actually knows the secrets. He knows how it all works and he's willing to talk. And they went to him and they said, OK, we're now we're now here. We're, we're, we're on your we're on your team. And Tung Biao was not one of them. He was always very suspicious from the beginning. And he wrote an essay. One of the reasons why he ended up on Guo's bad side, he wrote an essay in which he said, um, not every enemy of our enemy is our friend. He said, just because mm-hmm. somebody purports to be an anti-communist doesn't mean we should embrace them. He said, it's the same thing about Trump, um, that we shouldn't pretend that these that these folks are small D Democrats just because they're opposed to the Communist Party's form of authoritarianism. Many of them are, in fact, authoritarians of their own. And I think that is the sort of the note that Tung leaves the piece on as he says that it's a Faustian bargain to say, I'm going to tie myself, lash myself to Trump just because I think he's going to be tough on China. Um, if you don't ignore the, if you ignore the fact that Trump is himself quite a dedicated opponent of democracy. Right, right, right. Talk about some of these other characters who who, who come up in, in the piece, like Steve Wynn, you know, who was trying to, you know, get the guy extradited. What, what was the deal with that? Yeah, that was an interesting case. Um, at one point when the Chinese government was more or less throwing everything they could to try to get Guo back from what it seems, um, one of the things that happened was that they uh, made contact with with Steve Wynn, who was the finance chair of the Republican National Committee and, of course, also the proprietor right. of casinos in Macau. And at the time, his casinos were having a rough go. There would have been like new restrictions on the number of tables they could operate. 
And so they, he had a series of conversations with a security figure in China um, in which this guy said, we, we want you to try to get Guo back. And Wen and and, and said, well, I know the president and I'm going to, I'll raise it with him. And then you have this incredible scene, kind of surreal scene in which Wen has dinner with Donald J. Trump, president of the United States, and says, here's this person who China wants back. Can you just go ahead and do that? I'm paraphrasing here. And then right. in the and then in the Oval Office, uh, they have a meeting in which Trump says, "Hey, I remember." Uh, he says to his secretary, "Madeline, get that, get that, get that packet that uh, Steve dropped. That letter from Xi. That yeah, letter from that Xi. letter from yeah. Xi Jinping. Which it wasn't a letter from Xi Jinping, but it was a letter in effect saying." We, we want this guy Guo back. And there were people in the US government who stopped this from happening, either because they liked Guo Wenghui or because they said, well, we just can't, you know, we're not just extraditing people on the basis of a letter. I should say it's very important to note here, too, that Wen has maintained throughout that what he thought he was doing was not acting as an agent of China, but acting as an agent of the United States. He thought I was doing something that was in the interest of the United States, getting rid of this purported uh, alleged criminal. Yeah. yeah, alleged rapist, according yeah. to the Chinese charges. And, um, and uh, Steve, Steve, we're an upstanding citizen. Well, the, the Justice Department, you know, the Justice Department brought a case and it was like he was all about to go to trial recently. And then the case, um, the case was 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 thrown out. Um, so but the, uh, the description of all this comes right out of federal court filings by the Justice Department right. who had access to text messages and things like that. This is insane. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, this, I, I mean, I think this story really was like this. It was like the confluence of all of these elements that are of interest to people like the three of us, which is to say, like, how does how does influence actually move around in behind closed doors between American executives and Chinese leaders? How does, uh, you know, how does. How does all of this fit together? How does the intelligence community fit into this? How does the FBI and the CIA and, and the Ministry of State Security, how do they all play? And in weird ways, this guy's life actually lays it all out. It's almost like the entire universe is being run by Keystone cops. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> yeah, you know, we can laugh and all that stuff. And it, there's something comical, but he has had a real impact on discourse, on politics, especially in the diaspora community. Yeah. I don't know how many people I know, especially sort of, you know, friends of my wife who happened to have moved here years ago are are taken in right. by this. I mean, they, they really idolize the guy. They, they hang on his every word. They, they think that he knows something. Um, can you talk a little bit yeah. about that, about the impact that he's had on? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, there was something poignant in the fact that he found an audience immediately when he came abroad among people, and there are many of them, who are so determined, these are Chinese expatriates, are, have been trying so hard and with so little success to try to bring about a freer, more open China, that when they finally got this person who seemed to have access to information, he really had operated at the most kind of elite cloistered level of all of this power. And here he was willing to talk. It was like, it was incredibly tempting, and they and they surged to him. I mean, just as a measure of how much uh, how much support he developed, he was his his some of his organizations were able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars from people Jesus, in the form of yeah. quote unquote investment or donations and things like that. It was all this complicated set of 
shares and cryptocurrencies and the SEC, the US Securities and Exchange Commission eventually said this is none of this is legal. And the, the companies were forced to disgorge um, over half a billion dollars in restitution and interest. And- uh, sorry, let me can, can I backtrack a bit? So, so Goran Gui was running a cryptocurrency scam. Is that G coin? <laughs> uh, I should say in the Can SEC. In the SEC, in the SEC uh, matter, he neither admitted nor denied any wrongdoing, and neither did his companies. This was one of those classic SEC sort of settlements that is bizarre in the sense that it doesn't it doesn't say there was wrongdoing, but this but one side agrees to give up half a billion dollars. And there was <laughs> cryptocurrency uh, issued for funds Correct. donated by like. Yeah, yeah, naive overseas Chinese people. G coin, G dollar. It was the G coin, and G coin. I like the sound of that. Actually, <laughs> I, I, I think I see a pile of G coin behind you in the room. <laughs> I think that is. What, what I think is interesting is like it was a sign of how people were desperate, really, for hmm. something that could move the needle. And well, you know, it's a, it's entirely understandable. I have to say. I mean, I I feel like I would buy some G coin if I thought somebody could move the needle in China. Uh, and yeah. uh, uh, but I, you know, I think you and Kaiser and I have met too many people like Go and Gui in our lives to be tricked by that particular brand of charlatan. The thing that he's had an effect on to go also, uh, this is something that Kaiser raised is, you know, what impact has he had on the China debate? And I think that it's, this is where Steve Bannon describes something that is very real, which is Bannon said that you've, he's watched as the center of gravity in particularly in the Republican party around China has moved further and further to the right, towards overt confrontation, towards essentially calling the Chinese government illegitimate, which is you know just short of saying that people should rise up and um, overturn it. And there was a video Mike Pompeo put out recently in which he did that, speaking directly to the Chinese public. He said, you know, this government is is not a legitimate representative of the Chinese people. And Bannon, say what you will about Steve Bannon, but he is generally a pretty accurate analyst of his own party. And what he said was, trust me when I say that at the 2024 presidential convention, one of the big debates in the party is going to be about how far do we go in terms of calling the Chinese government an illegitimate government. Christ. So, yeah, I mean, you close the piece with with this talking about how he has moved the Overton window. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. So that that takes me down to the you know I think he's been an agent of consequence when it comes to this question of U.S. China relations and it can be you know one of the points I make in the story is it's sometimes easy for us to be dismissive of these kinds of people and you know you look back at the parade of Trump related figures and you say this is like this island of misfit toys and yet they have had this impact on America on America's place in the world and on its relationships with places like China, and and we ignore them at our peril. So if he's done this, if he has shifted the Overton window, if he's moved the Republican Party and certainly and dragged the, the Democratic Party along with it to the right when it comes to China, he, then that seems to refute the idea that he was this very cleverly planted chaos agent who was supposed to do sort of in a Putin-esque way to sort of, you know, um, pull the ep- epistemic floor out from under people and make them just like not believe that there is truth. Um, 
Was he a chaos agent? Well, then? to paraphrase uh, another great quote, perhaps too simple, uh, a bit naive. I think um, <laughs> I, I think uh, one of the things that people will tell you who work in the wilderness of mirrors, which is to say in the world of disinformation and complicated sort of strategy is like everything may not be as simple as it appears. And it's it may not be that actually it's just a question of oh, okay, he's pushed the party towards a more confrontational position. It may be that actually what's going on is that the goal is to generate internal division within the Republican Party or within the China community. And I'm not ascribing motives to him that I can't understand. I I don't do that. Um, What I'm saying is that sometimes what appears to be a uh, a campaign in one direction may actually be something that's pointing in a slightly different direction. As one person said to me, a former national security official said, um, you could make a circumstantial case that this guy is here just to screw us up, just to tie us in knots. That's the family-friendly version of what he said. Right, right, right. Thank you for not making me beep again. <laughs> well, I know how much children will enjoy this conversation, and so I wanted to keep it. Yeah, going. you're right. This is a family-friendly podcast. Yeah, yeah. My eight-year-old son is going to love this chat. Um, <laughs> Evan, it was a delightful, delightful piece. Wait, 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 wait. Before you try oh, to wrap you got, it you up, I have right? another question. How much money do you think Goangui has currently? Like, what, what do you estimate his net worth at? Right. That's now? actually like, a. It's, it's a super interesting it's a super interesting question. It's a, it's a it's a hotly contested question actually because when he applied to buy his apartment uh when he came to New York according to the confidential documents he provided he was he was the owner of a company with more than 4 billion dollars or roughly 4 billion dollars in assets um but he's now in bankruptcy here as a result of a whole set of and I, I think you mentioned in your article that he paid in cash like 68 million right. was it what was the number exactly. for that apartment yeah, right he did yeah he yeah. paid no mortgage 67.5 yeah. million dollars and i right. and i think and i think um but interest in in his most recent financial filings as part of the bankruptcy case and related litigation uh, he purports to own nothing. He purports to own no. He he says, uh, according to his lawyers, that he owns his clothing, and his dog, which is a Pomeranian named Snow. And he has no apartment. He has no boat. Uh, the yacht or all all of these things are owned, in fact, by family members or shell companies, or uh, or other financial arrangements. And right. you know, to a certain cast of mind, I mean, this would be people who are his opponents. They're describing this as the latest maneuver in this kind of chameleonic life that he's had, where he sort of seems to go from one thing to the next. So, but so basically, we don't we don't know how much money he has, but he probably still has a ton of money hidden we, away in various places. Uh, according to his according to his statements, he's penniless. But I will note that he's taping videos currently from a gorgeous estate in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I don't know, I don't know who, I don't know where that all comes down, but it's, he's just to go back to our very earliest point. He's a survivalist, which is more than a survivor. He's somebody who is expert at figuring out how to, how to carry on. Yeah. What a fascinating piece it was though. And, and, and thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join us. My pleasure. Uh, definitely check it out. It's in, in this, the current issue of the New Yorker uh, and, you know, savor it. It's it's really it really rewards close reading. 
Thanks, guys. Jeremy, man, since we're kicking it old, Jeremy, man, since we're kicking it old school and just kind of extemporizing, can you extemporize as we move into recommendations and and make a plug for you know what people can do to support work, the work? Well, I think the main thing is like a lot of people who listen to the podcast don't actually give a f- about the newsletter that we do or the website. A lot of people that listen to the podcast may not necessarily want to enjoy all the other adventures of the China Project, but there's a very good reason for subscribing to us. You get ad-free early access versions of Seneca on Mondays if you are a subscriber. So please subscribe. That's instead of Thursday. Wow, what a, yeah. I don't know, man. Do you think that's the real reason to subscribe? Okay. I, I, I'm trying to kick up the marketing. We can change that. Evan doesn't need to know the sausage making of this dirty like media business. We can figure that out later. It'll, it'll work. Uh, just so a, humble, let's just get- a humble, simple writer. I know not your fancy ways. <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky. All right. Recommendations. I am going to start with recommendations. And so my recommendation is Evan's article. I moved to the United States uh, in 2015 after living in China for 20 years. And I think it was sometime in 2015, must have been about this time of year, the fall, Evan published an article in the New Yorker about what would happen if Donald Trump became president. And it was the first time that I actually started to really worry about that possibility after reading that article. It gave me nightmares for months on end, but it Mm. was a most (laughs) excellent introduction for me to what America was to become just after I moved to it. So my recommendation is that article. Yeah, there have been so many great Evan Osnos articles. I mean, I, I your Joe Manchin piece, I, I thought was just fantastic. Thanks. Uh, yeah, that yeah. that story that, uh, that that Jeremy mentioned was yeah, it was an act of what we would call speculative nonfiction and uh, trying to uh, anticipate <laughs> based on all reasonable clues what it would actually be like. It, it was the most frightening thing I've ever read, and then it came true. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, it was prescient. It was truly prescient. I have a I have a recommendation that is actually going to put a smile on your face. It's like so fun, which is I was thinking about it in advance of our recording that there's a new audio piece that's just been put out. It's an, in honor of my late great editor at the New Yorker, a guy named John Bennett, who is kind of a mm-hmm. revered figure in our world. And there's a, a an audio sort of tribute to him that has his voice and the voice of other writers like William Finnegan from the New Yorker and Elizabeth Colbert and Nick Baumgarten. Oh. And you'll have to hear me again. But the, the point of it is you get these incredible lessons on how to be an editor and how to be edited. Anybody who's a writer will sort of savor this. And I'll just give you one example of a John Bennettism that he used to use, which is he said that um, he said every writer is like a patient in a hospital wearing one of those gowns with a split down the back. And the editor's job is to follow along and make sure that nobody can see their ass. <laughs> he was a maestro and i and i uh, i commend everybody to hear this that thing. is a wonderful line. it was produced by the by the uh columbia journalism review and i'll send the uh, link thanks do that yeah fantastic um i'm going to to recommend a novel that i finally got around to reading i'd just been putting it off for a long time because and weirdly because i thought it would be sort of like too erudite and too full of theology and stuff uh, it turned out to have kind of the opposite problem. It's Ken Follett's The Pillars of the Earth. Hmm. 
which you know is is really i mean it turns out it's kind of a melodrama um but a pretty compelling one with really fun characters i mean you know really evil villains and really noble mm. good good guys and uh and it's not it's not at all i mean there's a lot of architecture uh which is good and i mean the guy you know took an art history class or two mm. it seems and knows all about flying buttresses and that uh but it's great it's it turns out to be a really kind of rollicking good yarn um and I, I could yeah, use one I of those right now. Good yarn. Yeah, seriously. I, I remember might, Ken Follett as uh, there was a Ken Follett novel in my high school library, which had a, a pornographic scene in it that was the the talk of all my classmates. <laughs> this was in the 1980s before the internet. <laughs> it might have been this because there's there there are a couple of highly pornographic scenes right. in this novel, and um, including some really really disturbing ones. I mean, I should definitely put a trigger warning on here because there is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't laugh. I mean, it's terrible. It, it's actually, I, I'm sure a lot of readers were just utterly shocked by it um, because, you know, it's it's a violent, horrible rape. I'm sorry. I'm going to laugh um, at trigger warnings. Um, yeah, don't, don't, don't laugh at that trigger warning. But uh, it's, it's really good. Um, although uh, good for very different reasons than I had anticipated. Um, anyway, Ken Follett's The Pillars of the Earth. Nothing to do with I the pornographic aspects, clearly. No, no, no. Um, Evan, man, thanks that so much. That was such fun, Evan. Thanks, guys. It was great to be with you on, on this topic or any topic. Yeah, but this topic, wow. This is just, uh, we could just talk to you for like 12 hours on this and have fun. Anyway, <laughs> you have things to do. <laughs> See you back here, I hope. Yeah. Yeah, thanks a lot. Man. Jeremy, as always. Yes, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at thechinaproj. And be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.